Thank you, Pastor Sam. And if you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 18 today. Encourage you to use your own Bible at this time, whether it's a paper Bible, which I think is ideal, or your phone Bible or tablet Bible, whatever it is, you can turn there. We do have it on the screen, of course, but if you want a paper Bible, we do have them available out in the foyer today. So as you turn to 1 Corinthians 9, you know, just a reminder, as we start this new year, a lot of us are making goals or resolutions, you know, and just encouraging you in the resolution or the goal to know God better and have the Bible here, his word, which we can read and be familiar with. Just let me encourage you to make this year to be a year that you, again, continue to get to know God as he revealed himself through his word. We have Bible reading plans and those things available out in the foyer for you to pick up and to use by yourself, with your family, whatever. Um, But we're just glad to see God's word, uh, God's face in his word today. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear God's word. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is God's word for us today. Would he add his blessing to the reading of it? You may be seated. And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this first Lord's Day of this new year, we come as needful as we finished the last year. We need, God, your spirit. We need, God, your work. 
We cannot live independent lives, but Father, we live every heartbeat, every breath, everything we have comes from your hand. Father, why not receive your word? And so, God, by faith we do. Help us to hear your word. Father, help us to see what is communicated on this page, what you've written for us. And Father, help us to see how you are calling us to apply it to our lives today. We ask you, God, for these things, praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some have called our uh, era as the era of entitlement. The era of entitlement. And if entitlement shows up anywhere, it's going to show up on the online review of restaurants. I've heard from small uh, business owners that Yelp, that website Yelp, where people put their reviews, it's not uh, their greatest friend. In fact, it's where they get a lot of criticisms for their businesses. Uh, but I read one review of a particular Subway restaurant, and uh, this review goes like this. At a last-minute resort, me and my sister went to this Subway to get 63 foot-long subs for my grandson's confirmation party and had to wait for over an hour for the subs. Ridiculously long wait, and the lady who took my order seemed really annoyed with me. Well, could you guess? Yeah, maybe a little annoyed. 63 sandwiches, uh, that takes some time. If you don't cook much, you know, that does take some time. And that's, that's an extreme case, I think, but there, there are subtle ones and extreme ones that go around, aren't there? A sense of entitlement is when someone thinks that something is owed them by life in general, or it's owed to them because of who they are, or maybe it's because of who they think they are. So much that if a person doesn't get their way, they might throw a fit or cause a scene in order to get what they want. It shows up when people see themselves as the protagonist in their own story, right? We're writing our own story, it's going along, and if we're the protagonist, everything should go the right way, shouldn't it? Should always get the girl in the end, never get the bad grade, never be criticized for our work, never be fired, have that picture-perfect family, and we should be able to have 63 subs made for us in less than an hour. Well, it's likely that entitlement is something that we learn. I mean, it's something that we can really learn from families. I, I honestly believe that you have a self-indulgent generation which teaches other self-indulgent generations these things. I think it's epidemic among young people because it was passed on to them from another generation before them. Because we know that a sense of entitlement is something that can be part of every one of our hearts, young or old. It's where the term Karen comes from, right? In today's internet age. I even remember living in China, spent a year there, and because of their draconian one-child policy that, um, you know, all the families only had one child, and society was calling these children, um, these single children, they were calling them Huaren, which uh, translated is little emperor. And because the children were getting so much attention, they felt so entitled, uh, it was affecting their behavior. And, you know, for my family, we've learned one of the cures for entitled among, among, among little children is just to have lots of kids. Because <laughs> if you don't show up on time for something, you're not, you know, you're, you're not getting dinner. All desserts can be gone if you don't move fast enough. No entitlement at our house. But, well, there probably is, but... As, as a joke, I'll just say there isn't. 
Uh, the problem with entitlement, though, is that it sets us up against each other. I mean, it causes us to think about what others owe us instead of what we then can give to others. It's interesting to note that the researchers in China and looking at these little emperors found that many of the children who grew up like this had a little entrepreneurial spirit. They were very, very much averse to risk. Reason is, is because when they saw themselves entitled to so much that that risk of fear um, caused them, or the, the, the fear of loss caused them to give up any sense of risk and growth. While entitlement may be culturally supported, it primarily persists through fear. Because we're afraid of, when we are afraid of losing something, afraid of missing out on opportunity, afraid of appearing as less than someone else's eyes, we begin to demand the things that we feel entitled to. That's where our passage fits in today. Because it's an amazing example for how to deal with entitlement inside of our lives. Now remember, 1 Corinthians was a letter that was written to a church dealing with a specific situation. The church was in a city called Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians. It was written by the Apostle Paul. He had spent one and a half years there. He'd been gone about you know, hundreds, thousands of miles away for about a year and a half by this point, and he's addressing specific situation inside the church. And what is he addressing? But a spirit of entitlement which had grown up inside of the church. And that source of entitlement was causing them to disregard the love they were called to have for one another. Because that's what entitlement does, doesn't it? It causes us not to love. It crowds out love. Entitlement makes life all about us. So in chapter 9, what we see is the Apostle Paul showing what it means to give up entitlements. That's a good lesson for us because we're, we're slow to give those things up. And we need a reason in order to do it. What's Paul's reason for giving up things he's entitled to? And that's what we're going to see. His reason for giving up things he's entitled to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It so affected his life that he's able to give it up, but he also sees that he's on a mission. He has a calling to share that with the world, this life-giving message of the gospel, that as people receive it, as they believe it, they, their sins are forgiven, they're reconciled with God, they are reacquainted with their purpose for life, they're reacquainted with their, with their relationship with God, that they can obey him and serve him and please him. That's his message. And with that message in mind, he set aside entitlements. And what we want to look at today is how Jesus sets us free from entitlements. That sense of entitlement where we're owed so much from the people around us. Now, in order to see where our sense of entitlement is, we need to see what we feel entitled to. And the Apostle Paul does it, and this is just a wave overview, the Apostle Paul does it in a really interesting way. Because the first thing he does is he shows what he is entitled to. And in this case, he shows that he is entitled to a paycheck from the Corinthian church. He is entitled to it. But he does this really surprising about face, maybe one of the most surprising about faces you might expect in church history, but he literally argues why they should not pay him for his work. All right, so that's what you're going to see. I deserve it, but I don't want it. In fact, what he'll say is I'd rather die than to get it. Now, he's making this point, and if you look at verse 3, he's making this point for a specific reason. 
part of it, the reason is, at least, is he's being criticized. And he's being criticized for not taking the money. He says, this is my defense to those who examine me. He's being judged. He's being evaluated with the church. And they're looking down on him for various reasons. And shouldn't judge each other in the church, but it happens. Happened to the Apostle Paul. Probably going to happen to a number of us. I'm sure it happened to me. You know, I'm not greater than him in any way. And as the world, you know, as the world is judgmental, in the church, we are working our way out and trying to assess things biblically, rightly, but lovingly and kindly, the truth in love. Now, so how does he answer this judgment? He doesn't defend himself, but what he does is he shows that by my actions, I'm actually exceeding your expectations of me. It's one of the things I love about believers in Jesus Christ is they, their faith really takes root inside their lives. As they look to the things they're called to do, they begin to exceed the expectations, or they should, of the people which they work for and the people they work together with. We see it in other Old Testament and New Testament believers. We see it in the life of Daniel as he exceeded the expectations of the kings of Babylon, the king of Medo-Persia. We see it in the life of Joseph as he served under Pharaoh and exceeding expectations there. These were uh, men who uh, took on the grace of God and were able to exceed the expectations of those around them. So my first point is focus on this, is exceeding expectations. And we're seeing how Paul does it, especially in verse 1 through 3. In the Greek culture, which Corinth was situated at the time, uh, they emphasized philosophy, they emphasized education and knowledge. And so they would have great teachers who would travel through the land, travel through Greece and different places, and as they took up residence for periods of time, is that they would be, you know, maybe a hired teacher, a special teacher who would receive some level of patronage from the, the, the people who live in that town or city. You know, wealthy patrons, wealthy people would, would pay to keep that person there in order to teach them uh, for a period of time. Now, there's always a cost to this. We know that uh, nothing is truly free. A teacher would have a sense of obligation to uh, their patrons, to the people who supported them. Um, and the Apostle Paul, in evaluating this, he would not be there. He, he would not come under this system of patronage. You know, and that's why he was criticized. People actually looked down uh, on him for not following this normal pattern of his day. His refusal to take money was somehow discredited in their eyes. Maybe it's because they had no leverage over him when he wouldn't take their money. We can see in verse 1, there he says, am I not free? He refused to belong to them. He knew, he knew the rules of money. That the one with the money sets the rules. And he belonged to God. And he had the message from God that might be unpopular to the Corinthian people. And so he needed to be able to share it without any risk of financial compromise. If we look on to verses 1 and 2, we do see that even though he wouldn't receive that money from them, is that they still had a reason to listen to him. He was entitled to their attention, but it wasn't because of the financial pay, but it was because of the calling that God put in his life to be an apostle. He says, am I not an apostle? And then he goes on to show the chief qualification for apostleship. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? This is why there can be no apostles today, because the, the biblical qualification for an apostle is someone who saw the Lord Jesus Christ physically after his resurrection from the dead. And that's something the Apostle Paul had for a period of time as he was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
There's another reason we see uh, in verse 1 and 2 of why they should listen. It's because his ministry had changed their lives. Look what he says. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. He'd shared the gospel with them. He'd shared his life with them. And they'd received that message, the, the life-giving message of Jesus Christ, of the forgiveness of their sins, and they'd seen their lives changed. They'd turned away from sin. They'd turned away from the destructive patterns that they were in. They'd embraced Christ. They'd found community. They had found purpose and meaning. They'd found what they were created for through faith in Jesus. He was, they were his workmanship as God worked through the Apostle Paul in their lives. There's a great freedom in knowing God in this way. To the Apostle Paul, freedom meant to do everything that God had commanded him to do. We tend to look at freedom as choice. To Paul, freedom was the, the, the freedom to pursue holiness the ability to pursue God with all his heart, with all his soul and his mind, and not to be uh, prevented that by any obligation to another person. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know a freedom, a freedom that says is free from setting others' expectations as our primary target. Because we know that if you receive Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven of your sins. You've been reconciled with him, and you've been tuned to a new relationship with God where he becomes your audience of one. Instead of this audience of many, of the opinions of many people who uh, crush us under their expectations, there's an audience of one, one who's already received us by grace, one who's promised to furnish everything that we need for walking with him. And we know that as we seek him, we may not please everyone around us because not everyone is going to... you know, receive what, what, what God has called us to. But for many, we'll exceed their expectations as we, as we serve him. Even though Paul refuses to be paid by them or this whole system, in his ministry to them, they see his love, they see his ministry, and they should continue to listen to him. But he doesn't receive that financial support from them. And that jumps into our second point. Our second point is these expected entitlements. What did he expect? Or what what was expected, especially of them? What did they expect that he would expect? That's what we see in verses 4 through 14. Now, verses 4 through 14, we see the case for the financial support of ministers of the gospel. In other words, he sets forth a normal case of why those who minister the gospel ought to receive um, some sort of, uh, of financial remuneration for the work that they do. And he gives basically four reasons inside uh, verses 4 through 14 in this. The first reason for why ministers ought to get paid, we see in verse 4 through 7, is there's a basic right for workers to receive the fruit of their labor. Verses 4 and 5, we see he makes the case in light of human need. That the minister has to provide for his own food. He's provide for uh, food for his family. I mean, he needs to eat. He's not free from eating just because he serves God. Their family needs to eat. They need a place to live. And if a person is going to commit themselves to the work of ministry, he needs a way to take care of those basic necessities. And ordinarily, that comes from the giving of a congregation. 
There may be different uh, groups of Christians who do not believe that um, churches should have full-time ministers. We see that in a passage like this, that is a normal pattern that is expected by the Apostle Paul. doesn't always take a full-time minister in order to effectively minister in the church, but in a lot of cases, in most cases, uh, it does. You know, my job takes more than four hours on a Sunday in order to do. Um, you know, there's other things that go on in terms of equipping the church for ministry, whether it's mercy ministry, whether it's evangelism and going out doing it, visiting the sick, uh, dealing with death. You know, there's always responsibilities that are there. There's also the call of a minister of the gospel to pray, to know the scriptures, and to seek the Lord and his call and his uh, vision for the church. And, and, you know, those things take time. Many kinds of works are physically exhausting. Flexibility to think and pray and study. And so all of these things together, you know, require, in most cases, for a minister to work full-time for the church. I want to, as a side note, I have a lot of side notes today. Verse 5, you just point out something about um, the apostles at the time. Notice that most of the apostles, including Peter, the other apostles, they were all married. I know there's a, a doctrine inside of the Roman Catholic Church which talks about um, the perpetual celibacy of priests. You know, what we see here, you know, the model of the apostles um, given down for us through time is that, that, that marriage is a norm which is given for even those who work inside of, of ministry. So it's an interesting side note there. All right, so back to Paul and his salary. We see that in verse 6, that the apostle Paul continued to work an outside job. If you look at um, Acts 18.3, we know he's a tent maker, meaning he literally make tents, literally sell tents uh, for people inside of the community. He did this as a business. And so as he had time outside of his tent making business, is that he would do the ministry of the gospel. Now, many of the Corinthians, again, because their most highly esteemed people are philosophers, right? They don't need to get their hands dirty. So this is one of the reasons they would look down on Paul. Because he was a guy who, you know, labored with his hands. He, you know, he was doing regular manual labor. And it's a real picture for us where the gospel is just in this one person, the Apostle Paul. You know, we see this brilliant mind and we see this hard worker and laborer. We see the gospel is for everyone. You know, it's not just for one certain class of people. And the church of Jesus Christ is averse in that way. You will know, we'll see lots of people from all kinds of work backgrounds worshiping together inside the body of Christ. Now, verse 7, he then goes on to show there's no different expectation of the minister of the gospel in any other kind of work, at least in terms of financial payment. Soldiers receive salary uh, for the work that they do. They don't produce anything. They don't sell anything. But what they do do is the critical work of defending a nation. He shows that both planters and shepherds get the natural benefit of their work. They get part of the fruit, even if they don't own the field that they're working in. God has built this financial incentive into all kinds of work, including ministry, fulfills necessities. So that's the first reason we see this ordinary fruitfulness of work. But the, the second reason we see here is in verses 8 through 12, when he makes an appeal based on the Old Testament laws of mercy. So we see the Old Testament laws of mercy, especially in verses 8 through 12. So we can read, um, verse 8 says, Do I say these things on human authority? 
In other words, he's not just making this up, but he's resting his argument on biblical authority. That's how all of our arguments are resting on. What does the scripture teach? He says, does not the law say the same about about paying? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, he goes on to say, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You know, so the idea here is that as, as an ox plows the field, it should be able to eat while it's plowing. Even though it takes some of the profits of the farmer, it's proper treatment of the animal, and it's best for the farmer and his, um, this, you know, this animal which is a resource for him. The animal sh- uh, farmer should not punish animals uh, by hurting them while they work or by depriving it of food. It's unwise. It's also unjust towards the animal. This is a requirement of God. And if God has that level of concern for the animals, which he does, um, how much more would he have this concern for other people? That's Paul's point. He's created us in his image. We're his image bearers. How much more would he care for us in that? And so those who plow and thresh should expect a salary from their work so the family can survive and they can, can continue their work. This is one of my sides of the day. So I was meditating on this. It was just showing the importance of adequate pay for workers. I was reading Rod Dreher's book. He wrote a book called Live Not By Lies. And part of this book, he rehearses the rise of Marxism-Leninism in the Soviet takeover in Russia. And one of the primary reasons he highlights that they succeeded is because of the poor treatment of laborers for many, many years leading up to the revolution. Before the revolution, no one cared. Apparently, people didn't care for the poor treatment of the laborers. The Tsar wasn't able to do much or didn't care Politicians didn't care, the business leaders didn't care, the church leaders didn't care, and the laborers were treated so badly, and when people are treated badly, people tend to do bad things, like revolt and install evil totalitarian governments, which are far worse than what they were replacing. This is a picture, if we love democracy, I was reminded of this, if we love democracy, we treat people right throughout history. You know, people are treated poorly, They rise up. They get upset. We see the biblical principle of paying people for the work they do is a value in society. We don't take advantage of others. It's a call for God's people to ensure the just and kind treatment of all. We care about God's provision for those who be mistreated. So getting back to 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul goes on to apply this to his ministry by showing that those who sow spiritual seed ought to reap material fruit. It's a normal thing uh, when the, something is valued that it be supported. And the benefit is seen. It's obvious to all, so they come behind, and they want to see that continue for themselves. They also want to see it continue for others. And so we see this law of mercy and, and the value that's there. Okay, the third reason he goes into ministers being paid is seen in verse 13. And he gives the, old, he gives the, the example of priests. Verse 13 says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? 
So whether it's a pagan temple or whether it's a Jewish temple, is that whatever sacrifices and offerings were made, a portion would be brought home for, for the priests themselves, a portion would be brought back for the family uh, to take care of themselves. So that's another example. We see this in worship, whether it's pagan, and especially in Christian worship. We can look through the Old uh, Testament or the Old Testament worship. We can see um, you know, where the offerings are used for the feeding of priests and their families. The fourth reason he gives for ministers to be paid is Jesus' own teaching. In verse 14, uh, he says, the Lord commanded, talking about Jesus there, that those who minister the gospel should share their living from the gospel. This is talking about Jesus' own words. We could look at uh, Matthew 10.10, 10, uh, where Jesus says, for the laborer deserves his food. Uh, Paul speaks, he quotes Jesus later in 1 Timothy 5.18, when he says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads at the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So all this is Paul's case for the financial support of ministers. And of this, I'm personally thankful. My family is personally thankful. The whole staff of New Life in Christ Church is personally thankful. We're not a commercial enterprise. We are a church ministering the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and as, you know, as a church, we're halfway through our budget year. Our budget goes June through July. And you know, here we are, and you can look in the bulletin. You see just God's wonderful provision for us over the last year. It's been amazing. I mean, we're in the middle of the virus, and God has cared for the body of Christ. You know, and for myself, I am so grateful to have the chance to work with you in the ministry of the gospel. I'm so thankful for the chance to do it full-time, to do it without distraction. The other staff are thankful for that as well. And it's, it's God working through you that creates and makes that all able to happen. About half of our budget, if you're to look at it, consists of salaries. The other part goes to missions, ministries, ordinary maintenance of the building. You know, our calling is to build the kingdom by training leaders. It's called to make disciples, for people to know Jesus and to become like Jesus in that ministry of the gospel. And we don't want it uh, just here within us, but we want it for Fredericksburg. We want it for the nations. And so you demonstrate your uh, support of that and your generosity with it. And we're thankful for what God has done over this year and really over our last uh, 45 years of existence. Uh, another aside, on January 31st at our 6 p.m. service, we'll have our um, treasurer's report. Usually we do this as part of focus day. We usually set aside a Saturday to go through our focus day reports. Um, we're not doing that this year because of everything that's going on, uh, but we're going to incorporate that as part of our evening service. So I encourage you to be aware of what's going on there. Really a budget in a lot of ways is a vision uh, for what is we're doing, where is it we're going. You see a lot of it there, and, and John Hinson does a great job in explaining that. So I encourage you, come, either whether you're here, or whether you watch online, just be a part of that. It's really time to celebrate. All right, so getting back to our text, verse 15, we see something surprising here, though. This is where the surprise comes in. I already told you about it, but be surprised again, right? All right, so the surprise again is this, is that Paul does this radical about-face, and when he does it, he shows us some of the keys to dealing with entitlement. It's because for the cause of Christ, Paul refuses to take what would rightfully be his. Notice he spent all this time, and I've spent all this time explaining it, right? And then he just like, get rid of it. I give up all that, all that reasoning, all that justification. 
I would rather die than be paid by you, he says. Why would he do that? I mean, the Corinthians are offering to pay him money. You know, he's refusing money, which is being offered to him. He has to do extra work in order to um, provide for himself. So, you know, what is that reason? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads us into our third point of ending entitlement. Ending entitlement. He doesn't want their money. He's never wanted their money. But there's a key to giving up that entitled kind of life. I'll read verse 15 again. He says, but I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. It was a long time to write and explain to say, I don't want it. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. You know, it just shows this wonderful spirit of volunteerism, really. You know, the scripture says in Acts, you know, that with the day of God's spirit, God's people will rise up and volunteer. And even the Apostle Paul, you see this volunteer spirit. He is going there, you know, at no cost to the people who have brought him there. He's working in his own hands in order to make it happen. You know, it is death to a society or a church when people don't come and to uh, volunteer and to give. You know, love and the power of the gospel is seen as people give themselves for others and volunteering in that way. So let's see at three ways that the Apostle, Apostle Paul exemplifies to us an end of entitlement. The first thing that he does is to have a great cause to live for. That's the first thing, to have a great cause to live for. If anyone would ever be owed anything, it's the Apostle Paul. He's loved them. He's served among them. He's sacrificed for them, right? But he says he'd rather die than get money from them. And he says that's his boast. Well, great philosophers, great speakers and educators, you know, might boast about their education, about the books they've written, about the followers that they have, and about all these things. What the Apostle Paul says is his boast is this is that he can give out the gospel for free. That's his great boast. His love is for God. His love is for the Corinthian people themselves. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 17 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's where his boast is. For it's not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. If his boast is going to be in anything, it's going to be in God. And his ability to, to live obediently to God, to, to share the gospel freely without a mind for other things in the world. He will not give up his love for God. He will not give up his devotion for God in order to have security in this world. And he knows if he receives payment from them, he will no longer be free to do the thing that God has called him to do. Okay, tangent entering right now. Lots of asides today. This is one of my tangents because I realize you know, we want to be free in order to serve the Lord be free in order to serve God. I mean, and oftentimes, this is the problem where debt comes in. I know there's an insert inside your bulletin, Dave Ramsey, and explains what we do for that, because we know of your heart to serve, and many people's heart to serve the Lord, but financial challenges and, and decisions they've made make it sometimes hard to do that. And that's why the deacons have just put together this plan so that you can get that under control, because part of the freedom is, comes with the freedom of debt. And some of us are under so much debt and we have this obligation to pay off other people that we can't serve the Lord like we'd want to. I mean, maybe, maybe some of you young people say, you know, I want to go do missions. I want to go do ministry. And a lot of that, you have to make decisions consistent with that goal. You know, as you think about how you're going to pay for school, you're going to think about how you buy things, consumer debt, and all those things. You know, be free in order to serve the Lord. And if you need help with that in setting a budget, making that plan, you know, take advantage 
of that resource that the deacons are making available to us. We want to help people to live in that kind of freedom, the freedom that Christ brings. So getting back to our passage, we see this freedom that the Apostle Paul has, and he does it to serve God. You know, he knows something greater to live for, and that's that relationship with God. The second requirement for giving up entitlement, then, is to see God's call upon our life. To see God's call upon our life. We see that in verses 16 and 17, because here he gives up his entitlement to fulfill his calling. Now, it's clear that, the, that God has called the Apostle Paul to this ministry. He believes that God has. He, um, you know, he says that it's a necessity which is laid upon him. If you jump ahead to verse 19 for next week, he calls himself a slave or a servant. Because God is the one who has called him. God is the one who has redeemed him. He sees himself as a slave to God. He doesn't work for the Corinthians. He's an apostle. He's a missionary. But he's laboring for the Lord. God has sent him to preach. And as he sees himself as a slave to the Lord, he doesn't expect payment because slaves don't get paid for the things that they do. And as he sees this work as a necessity, he says this, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. When the Apostle Paul was called to do this kind of work, it was the same time he was saved. Jesus appeared to him, showed himself to him that he was resurrected from the dead, called Paul to believe in him, and said, go, and you're going to go be an apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, the whole thing is tied up together as one call. The Apostle Paul recognizes that to give up this call to preach or to be an apostle is also to give up salvation for himself. The two things are so closely tied up together inside of his life. I remember when I, before I became a pastor, I was told that if, if I could do anything else and be happy in doing it, have a clear conscience doing it, other than Christian ministry, then I should do that. You know, don't go into ministry unless it's the only thing that you can do. And I, I was happy in my job. I enjoyed doing the things that, that I did, and I took that advice seriously. I even wondered, you know, I really like my job, and maybe, maybe I shouldn't do ministry. But I realized that my conscience wouldn't let me do that. You know, I, I knew what God's call was. When God puts a call on your life that you fulfill that calling, it's, it's wrapped up with your very relationship with him. We need to do it. He's been called to preach no matter what happens. Then in verse 17, he goes on to say that if he chose to do the work of an apostle by his own will, then he has a reward. But even if he doesn't want to, even if he doesn't want to, he's entrusted with the stewardship. That means he's a slave. He has a responsibility to do it anyway. Really brings this challenge to us. In the things that we do, are we looking for a pat on the back? Are we looking for a payoff? Or are we looking for the faithful commendation from God? A word that says, well done, good and faithful servant. So we see the second requirement is to see our call from God. And our third requirement for giving up entitlement is love. These verses 17 and 18, again, the Apostle Paul talks about his reward. He says that when he willingly uh, does this ministry, it produces a reward. And if you look at verse 18, it tells us what that reward is. His reward is that he might present the gospel free of charge. If you jump back to verse 12, he says what that means is he does not want to put any obstacle 
in the way of Christ. No hindrance for people hearing the message of the gospel. No hindrance which would keep people uh, from having it proclaimed freely to them. And if money is going to be an obstacle, which he looks at as being, is it, he is not going to let that be an obstacle. Because he knows the gospel of Jesus Christ brings life. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a new king, a new Lord inside of our life, a new purpose, new direction. There's a life-changing message of hope. And Paul wanted them to know it. And so to Paul, his great reward is in giving. It's in giving. You know, what is your great reward? Is it in giving? That's the path of love. It's the path that the Lord Jesus Christ himself took as well. His reward, reward is to give freely this message of the gospel. That's how he participates inside their lives. He could seek comfort. He could seek security. But instead, he chooses to love others in sharing the gospel. That's his call. Not a financially lucrative call, but one which builds fruit for all of eternity. And... You know, when it comes to this and just thinking of applying it, I, I'm so grateful for those who lead inside of our church. Whether you lead in a Sunday school class or you lead a small group or you shepherd or you lead a Bible study, um, you know, so much investment inside of the lives of others. And I know it costs time, it costs money, it can even cost reputation in some cases. You know, but, you know, but that's, that's the sort of thing that God uses, this sort of love, which shows that we're free of entitlement, we're free in loving the Lord. There's a freedom inside of that, and I'm grateful for that. Again, what would cause a person to give up entitlement? It's only if we have a greater sense of love, a greater sense of security than the thing that we are living, leaving behind. We give up entitlement by seeking, by loving others. By loving the person that's right in front of us. By thinking the subway worker who's right in front of us is more important than we are at this moment. And that's a fruit of the love that we receive in Jesus Christ. No one has loved us like the Lord Jesus Christ has loved us. He died on a cross to pay the penalty of sin. If we really look towards the one thing we're entitled to, we're entitled to judgment, wrath. We're entitled to condemnation. But Jesus Christ took away what we're entitled to, and instead he gave us grace. Instead he gave us love. And that's going to change the whole way that we look at the world around us because we see the treasure that we have in Christ. We see what's been removed. We see what's been given. And wouldn't we be able to treat others with grace and respect and with love? I pray that as you're here today, as you're watching us online, that you would know the Lord Jesus Christ who's taken away the judgment of God against you and given you grace and given you his love. Would you receive that gift for yourself? Would you ask him to forgive your sins? Would you ask him to make you into the person that God has called you to be? Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. As you believe in him, you find life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we to come to you praising your son Jesus. He was the one who lived your perfect will. He was the one who exceeded all of our expectations, but Father, he met all of yours. 
there ever was one who was entitled to life, it is the Lord Jesus. Father, in him we have met the most loving person in the world. Father, he would give up what is entitled to, to save us. We pray, God, that you would give us a right perspective as we look towards our family, to the marketplace, our workplace, wherever it is that we are, that we'd be more governed by love for you and faith in you than any demand for a comfortable life. God, I know that in Jesus Christ, you're doing this in the lives of your people. And in Jesus Christ, you give the grace sufficient for it. We thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.